KDVS, uh, we have, um, I think, a very good assortment of public affairs programs. They do change from time to time. And we'd like to welcome one of the uh, more recent arrivals on the scene. This would be Chris Thielen, who's heard every Thursday between 8.30 and 9.30 here at KDVS on his program, An American Atheist. And we want to talk to Chris about uh, about this show. We're pleased to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Chris Thielen. Uh, hi, Doug. Thanks for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. Um, it's interesting, provocative title, an American atheist. Obviously, you're talking about religion. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the title actually sums it up quite nicely because uh, America, especially in the news and with our involvement in the Middle East, has uh, it's always had religious connotations to it. And I think the concept, even the title, American atheist, is going to catch some people off guard. You know, you know, oh, they have those in this country, sort of thing. <laughs> uh, you hear more about it in Sweden and and uh, those other countries. So. And, and that actually sums up the, encapsulates the show's purpose, is we'd like to um, let people know we exist, more or less. I am kind of curious about, uh, about that thrust. We certainly have heard some um, tone-deaf exclamations, I think, out of the Bush administration. They were talking about how we had to have a, have a crusade in the Middle East, which, which is it's unbelievable right. they would actually choose a word like that. Right, there's biblical language in politics now, isn't there? Yes, there is. That's a fairly good reason, too. Uh, we'd like to encourage... I guess critical thinking at the end of the day, critical thinking about even what's normally a taboo subject like religion, because maybe it's always pervaded into legal matters and into science, but, you know, when religion parades as pseudoscience or religion becomes the basis of making legal decisions like you have with um, Sharia law in Indonesia and places like that, it's, it's fairly dangerous, and especially in the Middle East, we have, you know, abuses to women's rights, and, and it's time that people actually said something about you know, these thousand-year-old uh, laws that people still respect. Even though your, your show is titled An American Atheist, you're certainly taking a look around the world uh, at what's going on. We do, we do. I suppose, um, I suppose it's a bit misleading in that aspect. But the show, the show itself is done in a roundtable discussion with anywhere from three to five people, and we talk about, you know, the news, the atheist news of that week, and hold discussions, because there's always you know, philosophical discussion or dinner table discussions or those sort of discussions you're never supposed to talk about with, right, with, with your family at the dinner table, that kind of thing. You know, that, that's where we're at. I'm quite curious. you got three to five people together, and, and how, how do you summarize the, the news? I mean, is it like, uh, I, I certainly there's a lot of going on in politics, and politics spills over into, into science, but uh, on our show we love to take on the creationists, and I suppose that must come up fairly frequently. We try and pick ahead of time. We have a couple of specific stories we'd like to talk about, and we like to at least pretend that we've formatted ourselves and educated ourselves on the particular stories, and then we attempt to uh, enunciate every single aspect of the story and how it relates, and they often launch into discussions, like even just recently there was a story about a, a North Carolina city council member who wouldn't, he refused to do the under God part of the oath, and people are threatening lawsuits, and so, you know, we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about the validity of of using religion as part of the vote, and even in a democracy, are people allowed to do that? Is it moral? Is it immoral? Even, you know, say you have 90% of the people who are religious, is it is it then even a problem to vote religiously? You know, so a, a lot of times we launch into, uh, into discussion like that. Well, I'm actually I'm glad you covered that North Carolina story, because we were thinking about talking about it, but it sounds like you guys have got it dialed in. Well, I'm, I'm, gl- <laughs> I'm glad, glad for that. We, should we 
perhaps send a list around so we don't don't do it twice? <laughs> well, I, some of these topics, I, think, I don't think you can do enough, Chris. But uh, but no, that's yeah. good. That's I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Um, I suppose things like whether you should be sworn in on a Bible and things like that in a courtroom uh, must enter into it. Right, yeah. I mean, it, at some point it's just culture, and that's absolutely fine, you know, if it's just tradition. But again, when it parades as pseudoscience or... Uh, creationism you mentioned earlier. I mean, that's that's just dangerous. And I, I think I read that in, in certain universities and states where you have a higher uh, density of churchgoers, or the state itself, like in Kansas, they're pushing for more creationism. They're actually producing less biologists. And, and uh, you know, America, you've already heard people lament about how America's falling behind in, in science. And it's not it's not okay. You know, these things will catch up to us, whether it's going to be you know, we have no one to drive the economy anymore because no one has any idea what they're talking about. And these sort of issues uh, do come up. But I do want to say, because I don't know exactly how taboo the subject is, but our, our main, uh, not to use the word crusade, but our main crusade is against the pseudoscience of it all and the way it damages society, which is not to say that people shouldn't be allowed to practice their own religion, of course. You know, if it helps people, that's fine. But that's different than legislating with it. Well, it certainly, you know, it spills over in things like the the abortion debate. But right. but besides creationism, what what other what other science topics do you see religion making inroads where it perhaps shouldn't? I guess creationism and evolution those are those are related topics. But abortion is a good topic because we're talking about women's health again. But um, there's there's psychological issues. Actually, I, I thought of one for you: the idea that uh, you can you, you can convert gay people. You can get you can they can undergo counseling yeah. and then they can be converted. Yeah, which I believe has a tremendously suspicious success rate uh, if they even publish such figures. Apparently it's worked for Ted Haggard. He's completely cured now. <laughs> yeah, and he's convincing too, right? Yeah, absolutely. This is a deep problem because even if someone goes to something like, I don't know what they call them, re-education camps or something scary like that, Yeah. this, this is creating deep psychological issues within people. And it's, it's just, you know, we're just asking people to think critically and uh, look at the empirical facts about the universe. You know, just because you don't like something doesn't mean it's not true. Right. Do, do you stray into theology much? Because I'm wondering, I, I, I guess on, on a bad day I say I'm an atheist, and on, and on a good day I say, well, I guess I'm more of an agnostic. I, do, you, do, you get, <laughs> do you get into splitting hairs over that sort of thing? I mean, it, it happens. I think we all want to believe that the universe is, is a friendly place and not, and not a mechanical place. Um, but, I mean, I'm, I myself started out, I think my, my family's uh, Roman Catholics, holiday Catholics, they call them, right? Yeah. <laughs> The Christmas Easter people. I went to college here at UC Davis, and it, it was actually through through things like science education and uh, you know watching uh, Carl Sagan's Cosmos and, and things like that really really make the start. You, you know, you have to start to cherry pick what you're going to believe. And at that point, I think if you have the intellectual bravery, you you may or may not make the leap. And no, and no offense to uh, other individuals. Well, you know, you know what, Chris. As as the year goes on, I presume you will be uh, doing this show for at least a few quarters. Uh, we should, when, yeah, when, when topics come along that are in this area, we may give you a call and maybe chat some of these things up because uh, <laughs> because I sort of sometimes feel like a lonely voice. As, <laughs> no, as I mean we try to beat up creationists because it's just it's an intellectual fraud, <laughs> and you know yeah. you can't you can't hit it hard enough. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm glad to to join the community, and I think there just needs to be more people need to come out of the closet. Is the term that I've heard um, <laughs> about this sort of thing because it is important, you know. Well, all right. It, every every Thursday, eight thirty to nine, an an American atheist. We've been speaking with uh, host uh, Chris Teelan. Chris, uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you, and we hope that we'll um, we'll do this again. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. We've got about six minutes left, it looks like, and uh, this might be the time in the show to do, as we like to do on occasion, uh, an obituary. In fact, we've got two today. We'd like to note uh, the passing of comedian Gene Carroll. I'm sorry to note that uh, Gene Carroll came just a little bit before my time. I, I don't ever recall seeing her on national television, although she actually had her own show for a while in the 50s. In fact, I first became familiar with Gene Carroll when reading uh, the excellent book by Gerald Nachman, titled Seriously Funny, The Rebel Comedians of the 1950s and 1960s. In the weeks to come, we plan to have Mr. Nachman on this program to talk about hopefully that book and about his new book about Ed Sullivan. Gene Carroll passed away earlier this week at the age of 98. Said her obit in the New York Times, though no longer a household name, Miss Carroll was at mid-century a headliner in the country's best-known theaters and nightclubs. She appeared often on The Ed Sullivan Show and had, had her own short-lived sitcom, The Gene Carroll Show, broadcast on ABC in the 1953-54 season. Genteel by today's standards, Miss Carroll's humor was radical in its day. When she came to prominence, no woman was expected to sustain a comedy act by herself nor was she supposed to be hugely attractive. The combination of feminine wit and beauty seemed too potent a cocktail to foist on the American public. Many 20th century female comics cultivated public personas that were variously frazzled, madcap, or dowdy. What was more, they often used their looks as the butt of self-deprecating jokes. Miss Carroll did none of these things. Extremely attractive, she appeared on stage alone in a shimmering evening dress dripping with diamonds and mink. That in itself was subversive as were her monologues about her being driven crazy by her spouse and children, a time-honored staple of male comics. Jean Carroll was also a scriptwriter for the CBS radio serial Our Gal Sunday from 1945 to 1959, about which time she married her manager, who became chairman of the Creative Management Agency. Jean Carroll left show business as a performer at the top of her game. Anyway, Jean Carroll is credited as being the trailblazer for every Jewish female comic who followed. Lily Tomlin remembered Carol as the first woman stand-up she ever saw when she was 10. She said her favorite line of hers was, I'll never forget the first time I saw my husband standing on a hill, his hair blowing in the breeze, and he too proud to run after it. And finally, this is a simple one that I want to note because, you know, as time goes on, events fade into history. One of the last links to the Great San Francisco earthquake of 1906 passed away last week at the age of 107. Jeanette Scola Trapani was clearly one of the oldest survivors of the quake, and there can't be many left at this point, passed away at her home in nearby El Dorado Hills last week. According to the brief obituary in the Sacramento Bee, Mrs. Trapani's daughter said that uh, her mother vividly remembered the terrible smell of the smoke from the burning city, even though she was only four. 
and how she and her family had to live in a tent in the Presidio. Of course, the April 18th cataclysmic quake was followed by days of fire that left much of San Francisco in ruins. It's a bit sad to note that one of the last living links to that, uh, that, that epic event is now gone. If you've ever had a chance to visit the Exploratorium in San Francisco, there is a wonderful recreation there of both the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake and the tembler that struck San Francisco in 1906. The, uh, the 89 quake is, is a pretty good shake, but when, you, when, when they recreate for you what it was like back in 1906, it, it, it's really something. I think Loma Prieta was what, like about a 7.6, something like that, and, and, and the 06 quake was like a 9.1 on the Richter scale. It was a monster. Did note that even in uh, Mrs. Trapani's obituary, they refer to uh, the fact that uh, it was the fire that did most of the damage in San Francisco. And there's an interesting story behind that. While it is true, it's curious to note that when, 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 the, when the quake is brought up in San Francisco, people always hasten to add, oh, but it was the fire that did most of the damage. That, of course, was the official position of everybody back in 1906 because insurance policies didn't pay if your building was destroyed by an earthquake, but it would if it was destroyed by a fire. I don't know that there were actual cases of arson involved, but, uh, but it is now widely uh, conceded that in how things were represented to the insurance companies, there was a lot of fraud going on. And by the way, if you do business or plan to stay in San Francisco, try and find out when the building you're in was constructed, because for about 50 years after that quake, there were virtually no building codes in San Francisco. The city fathers argued that it was too expensive to actually rebuild things to a proper earthquake code, so they didn't. This is the same mentality, of course, that tells us it's too expensive to clean up the environment. It'll it'll cost business too much. Our thanks to Chris Thielen. Uh, Will Durst didn't make it on week this week's show, but we'll have him back next week. In the weeks to come, we hope to bring on, as we mentioned, Gerald Nachman. We also hope to speak with Elizabeth Stitt about her work here at KDVS, uh, producing some news segments and some, some good work that is. We also expect to chat uh, with Nick Bruner from Capital Public Radio, and hopefully also with author Jay Rankin, whose book, Under the Neon Sky tells the unvarnished truth about Las Vegas. A book that may answer the question, what is it about Las Vegas that prompts otherwise rational people to make rash decisions they wouldn't dream of at home? We're looking forward to that one and, and a lot more in the weeks to come. So, so tune in. We'll see you then. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax.